Amen. Thank you, Ben O'Malley, for leading us in song this morning. And uh, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you again. As was mentioned earlier, this is the last week of chapel. So for some of you, this is the last Monday chapel of the year. For some of you, this is the last Monday chapel uh, forever. Uh, so not scare you. but um, So we're excited, though, uh, that as we have the Spring Traditions Week, just, just want to paint a little bit of picture and overview uh, before I, I mention specifically what's happening today. Um, but we have a couple different touch points of just, just honoring and recognizing and celebrating what God has done this year and particularly honoring um, uh, our graduates, which we'll be doing today, and, and, and blessing them and praying over them. Uh, tomorrow we have a student awards chapel. Um, so we want to invite you to, to be here, to participate, to honor and bless uh, your fellow students. Uh, Wednesday, I have the honor of being able to just to share a word of uh, benediction and blessing uh, on behalf of as we all go from here into the finals week and into our summers. Um, and then on, on Thursday, we have a final uh, crescendo of praise and celebration um, here. And then, as you know, Friday is a study day. There are no classes are, and there is no chapel. Uh, but for today, uh, we have three individuals that um, have been integral to student life, and whether you realize it or not, integral to your experience here at Northwestern. And uh, Jenna Thompson, Paul Bradley, and Nina Barnes uh, both love the Lord passionately and love students dearly. And uh, they've maybe played, maybe seen up front, maybe have a visible role of servanthood, of leadership, but I can guarantee you that whatever however many hours you've seen them or how many times you've seen them up front or visible, um, that has been backed by double, if not triple that, of what's done behind the scenes and in secret. And so um, they, they, they are here to offer a word of, of blessing upon, particularly for the seniors here. Um, but I want to invite all of you just to know that if you're here today, you're not a senior, you're not graduating next week, um, you're not here as a passive observer, but to be an active participant and to know that actually God wants to administer and give that blessing uh, through you as, uh, to our, your fellow brothers and sisters that are graduating. And so uh, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to invite Jenna to come up, and she'll uh, kick us off as each of them kind of share an overlapping theme of a word of blessing today. So would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you and praise you that um, even when life is uncertain, we can be certain about you. We thank you that your love is steadfast and always remains and nothing can separate us from your love. And Father, thank you that you are completely trustworthy. And we thank you that as we gather together here today, um, this morning, I pray that you would posture our hearts to receive the greatness of, of, of the blessing that has already been purchased, that has already been provided, that has already been made available to us in Christ Jesus, but yet so many things can crowd out our, and distract our minds and divide our affections, and I pray that you'd unite our hearts, unite our minds, Lord, as we uh, think of and particularly bless those that are graduating, and uh, Father, but how that blessing spills out and ripples out to every single person here today. So Lord, uh, thank you for Jenna, thank you for Paul, thank you for Nina, would you fill them with your spirit to be a pure channel of your grace as they share words of blessing. Uh, for, for each of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oswald Chambers, in his uh, daily devotional in, uh, called My Utmost for His Highest, says this, It is ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets among ordinary people, and this is not learned in five minutes. 
So many of you come into Northwestern to college desiring uh, big things from God. You have big dreams about your calling, big dreams for your life after you leave here. You're called to change the world, maybe start a revolution, a revival. And yet sometimes God is simply asking you to be faithful to the daily things of your life, to the ordinary people, the ordinary circumstances you find yourselves in, to say yes to things like laundry, washing dishes, paying attention to the person who crosses you on the street. And so um, I just want to share with you this morning um, on the theme of being faithful in ordinary life as you leave here. Um, I know many of us kind of get uh, drawn into this celebrity world of celebrity, even in, in the Christian culture where to do good things, big things for God is to be famous, to be successful. So I want to tell you a story about Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. He left a life, um, a successful life of being a soldier uh, to simply work in a kitchen in a monastery. And I don't know how many of us would choose to do that. But many of the people that um, have led the way for me and my spiritual life are the people that um, choose to leave places of success and power to um, hear from God in the simple, menial task of life. I want to remind you that we find our greatest calling from Jesus when he gives us uh, the new commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and um, also to love our neighbors out of ourselves, right? So there's saints um, that have written throughout the centuries in the Christian life, and they would say that our true and primary vocation is to love. It's the commandment that Jesus gave us, to love one another and to love God. So no matter where you would find yourself after you leave Northwestern, you can be true and faithful to the vocation that God has laid on you to love others. Mother Teresa says that following God is less about doing the big things, the great things, and more about doing little things with great love. And that's something all of us in this room can do, um, no matter what our future is. We can follow this calling anywhere, whether we get the job of our dreams or get rejected by our peers or employers, whether we find the love of our life here at Northwestern and we leave, or we find how to be faithful to God through us being single, whether we experience great suffering or trials or great success and esteem. My hope for you is that you would seek to be a person who is known by their love for God and others. Seek to be a person who postures your life after God and less about what you can do for yourself. You may leave here at Northwestern and being really confident in your career and what God has called you to next. You may still feel like, I still have questions, I'm still doubting, I'm still wrestling what it really is God has for me to do. And I just want to be honest with you that that might be something that you are continuing to talk with God about years from now. I know many people who are in their 50s and 60s who say maybe they finally got a glimpse. They finally got a glimpse of what God has called them to do. So it may take a while. We may have some uncertainty in our hearts and our minds about truly the very things that God has called us to. But what we, what we can be confident in, what will ease our anxiety is this call and reminder back to what Jesus said. We can all be faithful every day to love what's in front of us. God calls us to be faithful to our real lives not what is idealized by us, idealized job, an idealized spouse, an idealized place to live. But we can be faithful in our real lives. He calls us to real community, even when it's difficult. And we have to learn to repent 
and forgive. You've learned this as you've had roommates here at Northwestern, how to be kind to them, how to serve them when you're tired. In those very things, that is how God is transforming us. He's transforming our lives, and it's truly the gift that we've been given to love others in this way. And I truly believe that you'll find your way forward to many of the questions that you have if you're faithful to this one task, to love God and to love others. We can love like this no matter where we are because we know that the love of God himself is surrounds us, is present inside of us, is present in the ordinary, the hidden moments, the boring moments of our spiritual life. He is present inside of us so every moment is an opportunity for him to use us for his glory and to be an instrument of his love in the world. So my prayer for you is that you would follow the call of Jesus wherever it would lead you in each and every moment. And to trust that the spiritual life is not learned in five minutes, but it's learned in the faithful commitment to love God and to love one another in the ordinary tasks of life. Well, all of the odds were against David when he was up against Goliath, the giant. So here you have little David, a shepherd boy, younger, smaller, and he's up against this giant with armor and a sword. And you got to believe that people standing around watching the situation, they're thinking there's no way that David is going to kill Goliath. And in fact, Saul was uh, a little concerned, so he did agree, David, go ahead and try it. But Saul said, but David, you can't use the slingshot and stones. How about we put armor on you? and do it the conventional way, because you're going to go to war with someone who has armor, and how about you use the sword? And David actually put it on and walked around for a little bit, and then he said, no, I don't do armor, I don't do a sword, I do a slingshot with stones. So what was in David's mind when he enters this scene and he's looking at Goliath? What is in his heart? What is in his spirit? Well, it's as simple as this. He had faith that God would do the supernatural, and he did not listen to the conventional norm, the human reasoning that would be in the minds of people around. So he had faith, and he was not looking at what he could see with his physical eyes. He followed the wisdom of God and his kingdom, not the wisdom of this world. And isn't this the theme of all of the scripture? Story after story after story. You think of Noah who's out there for a 100 years building an ark, even though there's no water in sight, no rain coming. But Noah had faith that God was going to do something that was supernatural, not the norm, even though the people around were mocking him. What about Abraham, called by God to offer up Isaac? So Abraham says early the next morning, he got up right away, and he took Isaac, and he, he obeyed God because of his great faith. What about the widow? You remember the widow in the Old Testament that had Elisha come and visit? I think it was Elisha. might have been Elijah. I always get those two confused sometimes. But one of the two is visiting in this widow's house, and she has this little jar of oil. And the thought was, we could take this little jar of oil and pour it out into other jars, and we could then take that oil and sell it, and the widow would have money to pay for her family. Well, you know what the widow did? She went to the entire neighborhood, to all of her neighbors around, and she gathered as many jars as she could because of her faith. 
And you gotta believe that while she's doing that, that the neighbors are asking, so what's going on? And she says, well, I have this prophet in my house and we're gonna take a little jar of oil and we're gonna pour it into these big jars and it's gonna multiply. And surely there would be a neighbor that would probably say, well, don't you think you wanna just take maybe one jar and just try it first with one and just see how it goes? Because that would be a typical response that, w- that they would have and that we would have, wouldn't it? But no, this widow was saying to herself, I have the prophet of God in my house. I'm going to go find all of the jars that I can because of her great faith. She did not listen to conventional wisdom. And then you have the story of Mary, who is coming in with expensive perfume, and she pours it all out on Jesus' feet, this expensive conf- perfume, And people are standing around, especially Judas, and they're looking at at the situation, and they're saying to themselves, with their own human understanding, shouldn't we take this expensive perfume and sell it and make money and give it to the poor? Doesn't that sound like a good thing? And of course, Judas is saying that because he's a thief, but also because of his reasoning. So when we follow God with this kind of faith, this kind of conviction that we're talking about that we see in the scripture, We have God's wisdom in a way that seems crazy. And in fact, it it is crazy when you think about it. It doesn't make sense in the eyes of humanity. It doesn't make sense in our earthly understanding. Now, we're not saying to not have good thinking. So there's a place for good thinking, for sure. We're not saying don't have understanding. What we're talking about mostly is to not lean too much on our understanding. So there is a balance. The scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. So what it is is we shouldn't lean. So you're thinking leaning. We shouldn't lean this way toward our own understanding. Instead, what you do is you lean forward into faith first. And yes, certainly have good thinking along the way. But you start with this big faith that we're talking about. We're to first lean into faith, into God's wisdom, then use our good understanding. The two go hand in hand. This faith and wisdom go together. So I'm thinking of, for example, Moses' parents. They had great trust in God and great faith. But they also did what was reasonable. In fact, they hid Moses in a basket from the soldiers. So it's that both and. So I just want to make sure that's clear as we're discussing this faith, but here's what we're saying, that God calls us a lot, probably more than we realize, to live this adventurous and unorthodox life, and one that is often countercultural. And if we follow too much of human thinking or societal norms, we sometimes and maybe oftentimes will miss out on what God is doing. But when we step out in faith in the way that we're seeing and what's modeled to us in the scriptures, we experience God. When we follow him on his unusual journeys, we encounter God in a sacred and powerful way. And we encounter Christ and we even become more and more like him because he's the perfect example of what we're talking about. He's the one who follows kingdom wisdom from above and not human understanding. He is unconventional. He breaks all the rules. When he comes as king, he comes in a way that we would not expect. 
He doesn't do it the way we would, where he would come with power and overthrow the government. Instead, he does this upside-down kingdom. He comes as a baby because he knows how it works, that he is king of the invisible world. He comes to defeat Satan, not the government. It's like yeast in the dough. And then even the cross, like the Apostle Paul says, the cross is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense. If you're going to bring life to people, why would you die? But with Jesus, it's perfect sense because he's following a kingdom principle. He breaks all of the traditions that were going on in his day. He touches the leper. He's not supposed to touch a leper. He touches the leper. He hangs out with people you're not supposed to hang out with. He doesn't follow the Sabbath rules. He works on the Sabbath. He does miracles on the Sabbath. He connects with a woman in Samaria. Again, breaking the tradition. So he is our model that we are to follow, ultimately. So graduates and students, my encouragement to you and to me, to all of us, is to follow God in this way. To follow faith, conviction, kingdom wisdom that comes to us from above, even when it doesn't make sense. So may the Lord bless you with that kind of faith, with a faith that is willing to take risks, to do something that might be unusual or crazy in the eyes of those around you. But if God is telling you to do it, I really encourage you to step out with that kind of faith. So thank you. Lord bless. Good morning. I want to share a story, a modern-day allegory that I've adapted. It was written by Max Lucado. The three knights sat at the table as the prince spoke. My father, the king, has pledged the opportunity to pursue the hand of my sister to the first of you who can prove himself worthy. The prince paused to let the men take in the news. He looked at their faces, each weathered from miles and scarred from battles. The kingdom knew no stronger warriors than these three. And these three soldiers knew of no woman as bright or captivating than the daughter of the king. Each knight had asked the king for permission to seek her interest and affection. But the king had promised only an opportunity, a test to see which was worthy of pursuing his daughter. And now the time for the test had arrived. Your test is a journey, the prince explained, a journey to the king's castle by way of Hemlock. The forest, one knight quickly inquired. The forest, answered the prince. There was silence as the knights pondered the words. Each felt a stab of fear. They knew the danger of Hemlock a dark and deadly place. Parts of it were so thick with trees that the sunlight never found the floor. It was the home of the Hope Knots, small, sly creatures with yellow eyes. Hope Knots were not very strong, but they were clever, and they were many. Some people believe the Hope Knots were lost travelers changed by the darkness, but no one really knew for sure. Will we travel alone, Carlisle asked. A strange question from the strongest of the three knights. His fierce sword was known throughout the kingdom, but even this steely soldier knew better than to travel hemlock unaccompanied. You may each select one companion, but the forest is dark, 
The trees make the sky black. How will we find the castle? This time it was Alan who spoke. He was not as strong as Carlisle, but he was much quicker. He was famous for his speed. Alan left trails of baffled enemies whose grasp he'd escaped by ducking into trees or scampering over walls. But swiftness is worthless if you have no direction. So Alan asked, how will we find the way? The prince nodded, reached into his sack, and pulled out an ivory flute. There were only two of these, he explained, this one and another one in the possession of the king. He put the instrument to his lips and played a sweet, soft aria. Never had the knights heard such soothing music. My father's flute plays the same song. His song will guide you to the castle. Well, how was that, Alan asked. Three times a day, the king will play from the castle wall. When the sun rises, when the sun peaks, and when the sun sets, listen for him. Follow his song, and you will find the castle. And there's only one other flute like this one. Only one. And you and your father play the same music? Yes. It was Cassidan inquiring. Cassidan was known for his alertness. He saw what others missed. He knew the home of a traveler by the dirt on his boot. He knew the truth of the story by the eyes of the teller. He could tell the size of a marching army by the number of birds in flight. Carlisle and Alan wondered why he asked about the flute, and it wouldn't be very long before they found out. Consider the danger and choose your companion carefully, the prince cautioned. The next morning, the three knights mounted their horses and entered Hemlock. Behind each rode the chosen companion. For the people in the king's castle, the days of waiting passed slowly. All knew of the test, and all wondered which knight would win the princess's hand. Three times a day, the people stopped their work to listen. After many days and countless songs, a watchman spotted two figures stumbling out of the forest into the clearing. No one could tell who they were. They were too far from the castle. The men had no horses, weapons, or armor. Hurry, commanded the king to his guards, bring them in. Give them medical treatment and food, but don't tell anyone who they are. Dress the knight as a prince, and we will see their faces tonight at the banquet. He then dismissed the crowds and told them to prepare for the feast. That evening, a festive spirit filled the banquet hall. At every table, people tried to guess which knight had survived Hemlock Forest. Finally, the moment came to present the victor. At the king's signal, the people became quiet, and he began to play the flute. Once again, the ivory instrument sang. The people turned to see who would enter. Many thought it would be Carlisle, the strongest. Others felt it would be Alan, the swiftest. But it was neither. The king who survived the journey was Cassidan, the wisest. He strode quickly across the floor following the sound of the flute one final time and bowing before the king. Tell us of your journey, he was instructed, and the people leaned forward to listen. Well, the hope knots were treacherous, Cassidan began. They attacked, but we resisted. They took our horses, but we continued. What nearly destroyed us, though, was something far worse. What was that, asked the princess. They imitated. They imitated? Yes, they imitated, my king. Each time the song of your flute would enter the forest, a hundred flutes would begin to play. 
and all around us we heard music, songs from every direction. I do not know what became of Carlisle or Allen, he continued, but I know strength and speed will not help one to hear the right flute. The king asked the question that was on everyone's lips. Then how did you hear my song? I chose the right companion. And he motioned for his fellow traveler to enter. And the people gasped. It was the prince. In his hand, he carried the flute. I knew there was only one who could play the song as you do, Cassidy explained. And so I asked him to travel with me. And as we journeyed, he played. I learned your song so well that though a thousand flutes tried to hide your music, I could still hear you. I knew your song and I followed it. And so graduates, all students, my encouragement to you, my hope for you, my prayer for you is that you would choose your companions wisely. And not just your companions that you do life with that are present to you physically day to day, but the ultimate companion, Jesus. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he goes on to say, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. And then he, he, he gives them again this one commandment. Love each other. He said, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. And then he says it again in verse 17. This is my command, love each other. So as Paul and Jenna have shared, in the everyday life, in the everyday acts of life, we're called to be faithful. We're called to have an unconventional faith, one that defies wisdom. Brother Lawrence didn't ascend. He actually descended in the world's eyes to peeling potatoes in a kitchen faithfully. Other times we're invited to join a, an adventure that's beyond what we can even imagine that requires courage and resilience and perseverance. So whether it's a perseverance to stay in the mundane, the things that we think are boring, that requires perseverance. Or whether it's something large, so huge that we can't see how we could surmount it. Remain in Jesus. That's my encouragement to you.